Hello, I'm Catherine Nichols, and this is Lit Century, the podcast where we talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. This time, our year is 1958, and our book is The Bell by Iris Murdoch. My guest is Na Zhang, who is a novelist, translator, and a critic. I'll put a more complete bio for her in the show notes. Um, for a summary of The Bell, it is um, it starts with a young woman, Dora, who has left her husband and then also returns to him. Um, that's all in the first sentence. Uh, so he's studying at the small community beside a cloister in England. Um, among the other people in that community, there's Michael, uh, who used to be a teacher, and he fell in love with his teenage student, Nick, um, and was fired subsequently. Uh, Nick is an adult now, and he's also in this community with his sister. There's tension there. Um, there's another teenage boy also at, you know, in this uh, community who's called Toby. Um, there are other characters, but as always, this is difficult to summarize. Um, everything kind of comes together around the delivery of a new bell for um, the church. All right, so on to our conversation. So now, um, my first question for you is, why did you choose this book? I'm thrilled that you did. I'm really, really happy that um, that we're going to talk about this. Um, yeah. I'm just curious about what it meant to you or where you came to it from. Uh, so I, I stumbled into this book when I was browsing the fiction shelf of NYPL's 53rd location. We do um, have an NYPL location. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a shout out to the wonderful staff there and libraries in general. Um, the the name Iris Murdoch definitely rang a bell, but at that <laughs> time, <laughs> no pun intended. But at that time, I was actually confusing her with a uh, another um, women writer. Um, so I read the description at the back of the cover. Mm-hmm. It didn't interest me that much, like, mm-hmm. you know, erring wife, mistakes, marriages, and affairs. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem to be the book at that time that I would be interested in. But then I read the opening lines, and I would love to hear, like, w- how how you feel about, like, what was your experience like, you know, reading Murdoch for the first time, um, reading this book for the first time. So, But for me, the opening lines, Dora Greenfield... Um, let me find that. I have it right here. Do you want me to read it? Yeah. Okay? Do you want yeah. to read it? Dora Greenfield left her husband because she was afraid of him. She decided six months later to return to him for the same reason. Da, da, da. And then she decided at last that the persecution of his presence was to be preferred to the persecution of his absence. And I was like, this is not an ordinary book about affairs and making mistakes. I have Absolutely. to follow this writer. You know, it's just yeah. amazing. I, yeah. I felt the exact same way about the first, yeah. like really the entire first page. I just found mm-hmm. it captivating. And I yeah. think that like any fiction writer aspires to, I guess, I think that it feels so fresh and light and free. And it also sets out kind of the entire problem of the novel mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't feel labored at all. Mm-hmm. I totally agree because like I was, thinking about why I love this book the other day and I realized that it was because Murdoch was capable of letting us see how we are always how we can be attracted to and repelled by the very same thing yeah and this this opening lines now that I think about it about fear how fear 
um, drove Dora out of marriage and then drove her back into her marriage. It's pretty much the same thing. So, which is, which is why I totally agree with you that even in the opening lines, Murdoch has sort of laid the foundation for the theme that she wants to explore through the yeah. entire. Yeah, and there's that relationship between Dora and Paul, and then there's uh-huh. the the physical layout of the novel is kind of uh-huh. like. This is just, I'm going to lay it out for listeners. Um, Mm -hmm. There's this convent where there are completely enclosed nuns that, um, that never leave. Like they, they spend their entire adult lives in this convent. Um, And then outside of it, there's this community of people that are kind of like oddballs who don't really fit anywhere. And they're like, they they sort of feel that by making a little like almost fake monastic community right outside the convent, they're doing something that is close to being godly, but they don't actually want to commit to being true monastics. Um, but they feel like they're closer to goodness mm-hmm. by being there and that they're not really in the world, um, but they're not out of the world either. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the rest of the world, which is a place of complete chaos. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I, like where anyone yeah. can do anything. Yeah, but exactly. Like, so one of the early gestures in the um in this like semi-monastic community when Dora goes to the semi-monastic community where her husband is, um she brings some fresh flowers into her room and they say, "Oh, we don't mm-hmm. <laughs> It's like the it's like one of their gestures toward goodness is to not have fresh flowers, which is yeah. just it seems like such and it seems to Dora also like such a pointless gesture that has nothing to do with goodness. Yeah. Um, and she's also like grossed out and repelled by the idea of being in a like an enclosed nun that she thinks that that's like a horrifying idea. Mm-hmm. But also what's interesting about um, Dora's um, relationship with religion or with this type of life is that like when she flees the sort of community, goes back to London to her ex-lover, mm-hmm. she suddenly finds it finds the charm of being living close to nature, not living in the way that the community aspires to live, but in a way that allows for great better connection with nature and with, you know, um a freer sense of self. I don't know. And, and that's, that to me is fascinating. Yeah. I think that, that, that the way that the community is, is positioned right in between two commitments, the commitment of London to worldliness and the commitment of the convent to Mm -hmm. complete rejection of the world. um, It's similar to how she is in relation to Paul, but it's also Mm -hmm. how she, how she is toward everything. Yeah. Like, I love her as a character. I thought she was so unique. Like, yeah. Well, I, I, so, okay. So <laughs> I love her. Things, okay, good, good. Do, do you identify with Dora? It's like, she's the character that you identify with the most. Um. Yeah, probably. Yeah. So I'll say something else about that, about there's something about Iris Murdoch's texture of mind that I found mysterious. Mm. And wonderful, but not at all relatable. 
but I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But I just wanted to say something about Dora is like she goes for a walk and like loses her shoes. Mm-hmm. She does absolutely everything wrong. But she never really cares. Like she's supposed to bring her husband this, you know, very important notebook that has all of his notes. It's very precious. And then she leaves it on the train. And I was like, oh, my gosh, wow, if that was me, I would be so upset. I would be, like, making calls. I'd be going to the train station. I'd be, you know, like, figuring out, like, who, you know, would have a lost and found. But she's just like, oh, well, I guess it's gone. And that's just, but she's like that about everything. (laughs) I used to be like that, which is why I identify with her so much. Oh, you used to be? I would say I'm still like that. I still feel like, (laughs) try not to be like that. Yeah, I love how, like, what an animal she is. Just sort of like an animal disguised in a woman's form. Like, oh god, at, I love that. The, I love that. Yeah. That's so right. Yeah, at the beginning of the novel, she showed up as this woman who has a powerful imagination, who has no sense of herself, and who is not very good at analyzing people with precision, and who cannot defend herself very well. So basically, she's not cerebral at all. Yeah, and. She's attracted to her husband because of the a li- for the money a little bit, but mostly for this animalistic passion that he has felt for her. Yeah, and she, she, she's intimidated by that violence of love, but she's also attracted to it. And in that sense, they were sort of like a match for each other. Although, of course, and there he, are other aspects that he's horrible for her. Yeah, that he has so much certainty. And so much mm. self-control and yeah. so much belief that if she is not full of certainty and full of control, it's mm-hmm. because she's teasing him and because mm. that she needs him to control her also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to clarify when I said I related to her. The one thing I don't relate to about her is that I would feel very bad about it. I would feel bad um, about being like her. I see. Yet, <laughs> there was something just wonderful about how she doesn't seem to feel bad ever. Mm. Mm. I agree. Yeah. Because she has no memory. <laughs> exactly. Totally yeah. right. She's totally like an animal. Yeah. <laughs> so That's why she, she never bear grudges because it's, you know, it's gone in a second. Yeah. Yeah. And yet she does have that feeling that, well, I guess maybe like a cat, that if she's inside, she wants to be outside. And if she's outside, she wants to be mm. inside, you know? Yeah. Um, I I loved her as a character. I thought she was so well-drawn. I thought that um, Michael was the other one who seemed very well-drawn to me. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, so for listeners, Michael is a character who um, is gay and had, when he was a young teacher had a great passion for this student, Nick. And um, it appeared to be uh, requited. Uh, but then Nick went to the authorities and confessed. And so Michael lost his job. And eventually, uh, Michael ends up at this this community, um, kind of neither in the world nor out of it. Um and then Nick does as well. Nick is also there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that, that that the love scene between Michael and Nick was one of my favorite parts of the book. It just oh. seemed like 
just very pure and unselfconscious um, love, knowing that it couldn't have any future or any, mm-hmm. like he didn't want anything from Nick except to love him, you know? Mm-hmm. And then how, how do you make of Michael's behavior towards Nick after Nick was admitted into the community? Like Michael has been basically avoiding Nick. Yeah. Until the very end, until it was too late. So how do you feel about like this love? Or, you know. It just seemed um, okay. So my my larger feeling about this book is that it's kind of like if the seasons are told to you, but you don't live in a climate that has the seasons that are told to you. Hmm. So okay, I, I, that's not. I didn't say it very well, but it's like if you're told that fall starts in September and everyone has to start wearing sweaters and wool coats, but it's Uh still 90 degrees out. It's like, is it fall? It's like you're calling it fall, but it's not really fall. You still have to sort of ask yourself like, well, can I go to the beach? Well, it's 90 degrees out and Mm -hmm. I definitely could go to the beach and wear a swimsuit. And um, that in that kind of way, they have to figure out what good and bad are. Mm themselves because they're being told like this is what goodness looks like but it doesn't apply to any of them at all mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. like is goodness staying in her marriage for dora like of course not mm-hmm. is goodness to absolutely avoid all homosexual love for michael like of course not like they just have to navigate what goodness means and yet it's not it's like it's not that michael is wrong to be gay within the world of this book but he but he shouldn't go after very young boys Mm -hmm. he shouldn't go after like teenage boys who are his students and that is actually bad in the world of this book um but there's no there's no compass that will tell them where the lines are they have Mm -hmm. only this sort of map of goodness that doesn't really fit onto their experiences at all Mm -hmm. and i think that um I think that the way that the book has a landscape of um, of neither being in the world nor out of the world, or it also has this landscape of neither being in goodness nor out of it, but very interested in what it would be to be good, but mm-hmm. to not really have any um, external understand. Like, there's no signposts, there's no map, there's no way of knowing how to become better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I guess I'm more, uh, compared to Michael, Toby, and Nick, the mm-hmm. love triangle, I guess I'm more drawn to the contrast between Michael and James as two competing leaders of the community. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to me that um, Michael, who aspires to be good, who's sensitive to another nuances of human feelings, is actually the one who keeps repeating his past mistake. Like he kissed Toby, who was 18 at that time. And back when Murdoch was writing, 18 was still considered a minor. And also, but, but it was James who has no imagination who is a rigid follower of rules, 
who is all for orthodox values and beliefs, he's the person who make the right decision at the end um, in a way that sort of saves Toby. So I think Murdoch is actually a little bit playing with us a little bit. Like, yeah. he, because Michael is the kind of character that it's, that it's so easy for literary readers to be drawn to. Absolutely. That's in true. another word, it's easy for us to be seduced by Michael. And I was listening. That's a great point. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast episode on Murdoch the other day, and one of the speakers pointed out that someone, um, I will share the name with you later when I find that um, when I find out. Um, someone wrote actually wrote a paper on Michael and compared Michael to Humber Humbert. Oh, yeah. So because like we're only getting Michael's perspective. And we never know why Nick would came to the authority and why Nick eventually decided to do to to commit suicide, basically. Yeah. Um, so it's it's always Michael's one side of story, side of story. And we, we don't know what actually happened. And because he's the person that he's presented to to be like the sensitive leader. Like I for like I've read the bell two or three times, but I've never um, even suspected his, you know, his culpability, sort yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. Um, I'm just thinking about it. Because, the, like, one thing that I noticed is that Dora's consciousness is so clear to me, and it makes so much sense to me. And Michael's consciousness also feels very clear. But there's quite a lot from Toby's perspective. Mm -hmm. Toby is also, you know, a pretty well-drawn character in a certain sense, but he's not very clear to me. And in some ways, he seems like a young person from a mature adult's perspective. Mm -hmm. He doesn't doesn't fully seem plausible to me as an 18-year-old. He -hmm. feels like somebody's external observation of an 18-year-old or their memory Mm -hmm. Well, not even a memory of being 18, because he doesn't, he just seems very willing to play the role in the adult's drama. He doesn't seem to have Mm -mm. a huge number of passions or um, motives of his own. Mm -hmm. And if there's one thing I remember about being 18, it's like, you have a lot of motives. You're not just like, (laughs) (laughs) you don't think like, oh, well, you know, the adult's like interpersonal dramas and like what the adults regret and what they're aiming for and stuff like that's like he's not really a person beyond being a pawn in some Mm -hmm. ways Mm -hmm. because it is like michael and it is uh james that make decisions about you know what he should do and where he should go but he doesn't seem to have any i mean you tell me if you see it differently but he doesn't seem to me very full beyond that you mean James or Toby? Toby. Toby. Yeah, I agree. I think Toby is a flat character and yeah. in, in a good sense. And my, and Murdoch is very, very good at um, painting, uh, like loving and very convincing, but uh, two-dimensional characters that are... Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but it also made me think... Hmm. You're, you're thinking maybe Toby's being seen from Michael's perspective? Yeah, I guess 
I guess it's like it makes sense that we would only see Nick when mm-hmm. Nick was a student. When when uh, Michael was in love with Nick, we understand mm-hmm. that there's like that probably Nick had this whole side of this experience that we're not shown because it's through Michael's perspective. But we do have quite a lot of Toby's consciousness, mm-hmm. but we're not really given enough information to know if Toby is really harmed by Michael's love. Mm-hmm. Or we don't really know what it means in his life. Or mm-hmm. if it's kind of like changing him in any way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, unlike, you know, in Lolita, you'd say that we have abundant information, even though Humbert doesn't see it. We can mm-hmm. see it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Toby was rattled enough by that kiss to act in a way to act sort of um impulsively yeah to 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 court dora and also yeah. to um help her carry out her little wild scheme so I, I feel like dora and toby actually shared certain kind of innocence yeah i think that's and it's true. this sort of like naivety that becomes the propulsing force of this narrative you know without dora without toby this the 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 implosion of the catastrophe catastrophes would never happened would, would never have happened do you see um catherine and nick as being within that naivety mm, i don't i don't know i wouldn't say they are naive i think they are deeply wounded I think they are vulnerable and I think they are drawn to the community and the concept, like the the ideal that it's set up for itself to be cured or to be healed. But eventually it healed none of us, uh, neither of them. And yeah, yeah, they were, they were terribly wounded in the end. Yeah. It was really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was really sad. I I found the ending to be sad in a way that um, that felt like we were removed from the sadness. Like it was almost like it happened in another room or something. Mm-hmm. Like a, a distance between the reader and the mm-hmm. the more tragic things, uh, listeners. So this is a suicide attempt from Catherine, and a um, a successful suicide from Nick, and. Um, did you feel like that there was somehow like we weren't being shown their descent mm-hmm. into despair? We were just I, shown like the day yeah. that you know things don't go great for Dora. I wasn't gonna ask. I was gonna ask you like how you felt about Catherine's internal drama. Like you know, like how, does it feel? Does the revelation of her love for Michael in the end convincing to you? Because for me, it's not very convincing. Like, I'm no, it, it actually not, not necessarily persuaded by that. Yeah. This is what I was going to, I was saying earlier that I was going to say this later um, about <laughs> Murdoch's texture of mind. Um, that I think that, it, um, you know, the, the thing where fiction writers, if they're drinking a lot of coffee, will have characters that drink a lot of coffee. Um, 
Do you know what I mean? Like that that's an effect that's known in fiction writers. That, like, oh, really? I, I, I know. If you're like, you don't really know what's going to happen next. If you personally are smoking a cigarette, then your character <laughs> might start smoking a cigarette. That that a fiction writer might unconsciously give um, her characters some of her own habits in mm-hmm. the little like the the places that she didn't fully imagine it. Um, if in the same parts of her own life where she's not fully imagined what kind of person she is. And she's just like, Oh, I guess I'll just grab a cup of coffee then, you know? Um, Okay. So I thought that the texture of Murdoch's own life was a, was part of this book where Mm -hmm. um, she seems to have a huge amount of freedom to do whatever she wants to do. And I'm just saying Murdoch, because I don't really know if Murdoch had a ton of freedom to do whatever she wants, but you know how if you're in a university, it feels like you just kind of go around like talking to people Mm -hmm. and sometimes you have to go to class and sometimes you're just like in between things and you're just talking to people, but that's not the same as if your life is, um, I don't know, if you're like a toll booth operator or something like that and you have to sit in one place and you might write a book about somebody who just has to sit in a booth all the time or something mm-hmm. that metaphorically has that feeling. Um, there was something about this that felt like it was connected to a university life or an intellectual life. Um, even though none of these people are directly in a university, but the way that the community works where it's mm. like, it's kind of religious adjacent but not religious exactly and it has these rules but they don't quite make sense and there's people that live together um but they don't necessarily love each other like do you know what mm-hmm. i mean like, mm-hmm. this feeling of universityness without a university or a yeah. feeling of, like artistic community without art necessarily um but also it had this um it had this feeling of like an unhurried person who's able to think all of their thoughts all the way through without being interrupted. Uh-huh. And so one of the writers that I think of as, as having her own mental texture coming into her writing a lot is like um, Diana Wynne Jones, who is also educated at Oxford and is a little bit younger than Iris Murdoch. I looked this up and she wrote um, Howl's Moving Castle and she wrote a bunch of other children's books, but all of them have the same like at some point the characters are always like rushing around and they're really like exasperated and they're like, somebody just has to clean the living room and (laughs) hang up their coats and not just leave them in a pile on the floor. And like, so Diana Wynne Jones had three children Uh and Iris Murdoch did not have children. And I was like, there's something about the feeling of this book that is um, different than how it feels to me to be a person because I have a lot of children. I see. But like the texture of my mind is affected by how many times I tell people to put on their shoes and hang Uh on their pants. And being in this book feels like being in this very unhurried, it's like there's plenty of time, there's plenty Uh of money. People kind of just do things for no reason. You know what I mean? I love it. Yeah, yeah. Like people can just take a train into London and then they can just take a yeah. train back out to Oxford and yeah. or is it up to Oxford? Whatever. Um that there's 
there's a feeling of being comfortably at home in an intellectual life, even if you're not at home in a world, but you're mm-hmm. at home in your mind. Um, that this book has that I wouldn't say any of the characters have exactly, but all of that made me feel like the descent into madness that Catherine experiences and the way that Nick is so like full of despair and so wounded. It didn't feel plausible to me. Catherine's Mm -hmm. love for Michael didn't feel plausible to me because I don't know that somebody who has that texture of mind, um, I don't know that she could imagine it. Mm -mm, I agree. You know? Yeah. I think the reason that she limited our access to the interiority of Nick and Catherine is also because she wants, she, 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 she doesn't, I wouldn't say like she doesn't know how to portray it, but maybe she's not even interested in portraying it. Exactly. Um, yeah. 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 It's just not that book somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because at the end of the book, I still feel like it's, um, we, we see Dora's triumphant reemergence into the world and we see Michael being diminished a little. I feel like this is the book about Dora and Michael. It's not even about Toby. Yeah, it's I agree. about these two conflicting forces each, you know, working out their own trajectories. Do you think that Dora and Michael's trajectories are similar or dissimilar? Like, is there a reason that they're in a book together from your perspective? Um, I think Michael is someone who feels and thinks too much, while Dora is someone who feels little and thinks little. Thinks less, Um, yeah. (laughs) But acts a lot and yeah. is not afraid of making a scene or creating disasters. While Michael, Michael is sort of burdened by his thoughts, which is why he's so slow in coming to Nick's rescue. And I, yeah, I do feel like there is a reason that Murdoch places them together and follows them carefully. I think she's basically drawn to the two conflicting forces they presented in herself. Like she wants to explore her impulse to act like an animal and also her impulse as an intellectual. Yeah. Yeah. Murdoch, I think I I haven't read any, um, but, but like a few bio, biographical facts I know about Murdoch is that she has quite a few romances. Yes. yes. Men and women. Yep. And yeah, I, I feel like she's a, she can be an animalistic woman, like in a, Oh, absolutely. Good, yeah. In a good sense. Yeah. And also she has spent six months at a convent and she's sort of like drawn to spirituality, but also repelled by it. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, she's, which is why like her book is full of tension because herself is tortured by this tension. Yeah. I, um, I uh, read um, the women are up to something, the um, Mm. book about Iris Murdoch and uh, Philippa Foote. Elizabeth Anscombe and Mary Midgley. Um, I really liked it. Um, And it sort of places them in like philosophical moment. I I don't want to try to sum it up, but I think that um, the the point in this book is that all of these 
philosophers um, that after they saw the Holocaust and, you know, everything involved in World War II, um, they needed a new framework to understand morality and that they needed a way to think about morality where that has more certainty that would match the feeling of like, well, you know, maybe some things are up to interpretation, but some things are actually just simply wrong. And we need a framework in which we can decry evil when we see it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I, I was looking for that in this book. I was looking for the question of moral certainty in this book. Yeah, for sure. I, I still find Murdoch quite a mystery when it comes to her views on morality. And because she, she's the type of writer who always says that she doesn't write philosophical novels. Yeah. And she doesn't want to use novels, use fiction as sort of like a vehicle for, um, to, to work out her thoughts, philosophical thoughts. But I, I still feel like, I, I still feel like her training as a philosopher, um, sort of seeps through. Yeah, and, I completely agree. I'm just looking yeah. for a section where I had uh, folded a page to to say something about that. But yeah, I think one thing interesting about Murdoch's way of writing novels of ideas, I still think it's a it's a novel of ideas where she wants to um, write about you know ways we we guide oneself ourselves and but but one thing i love about it is that on the one hand she invites us to think about what's right what's wrong how we should um what principles should we use to conduct our life but on the other hand by um, having those ideas being embodied by characters so fully and convincingly drawn that she makes it impossible to talk about these ideas without talking about the personalities that provide the soil yeah. for the ideas to sprout and flourish. So, so at certain point, if you if you if you think about James, he's this representation of rigid ideas, orthodox values. But at the same time, he's the younger son of a military family, and his he has the experience that he has experienced so he's he becomes the person he is today and it's impossible to you know pull the ideas out like from from the flesh to to talk about abstraction you know ideas as abstraction so i i think what's wonderful about murdoch is that at the one on the one hand she invites us to have philosophical debates but on the other hand by having this <laughs> fully um like three-dimensional characters walking in front of us, it, she makes it impossible to talk about them. Yeah, I, I think that that is in itself a, um, a philosophical position, mm. that, that the particularity of the people and how they came to have the ideas that they have or how they came to make the judgments that they make mm -hmm. is uh, impossible to separate from... Yeah the uh from how we judge the judgments or how we judge the actions um yeah. but i no i i um i wanted to say that to add to your point just because i completely agree with you that 
Um, she definitely is not making a novel of ideas in which people stand in for mm. positions. And then the person who, you know, like, like Dostoevsky, <laughs> it's like, it's not like if uh, Ivan, the atheist intellectual is, you know, if he indirectly causes a death, it's because uh, atheism is bad. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, they're not like symbolic stand-ins mm-hmm. or ideas. They're, uh, they're people first. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that's definitely a strength. I agree. Yeah. Well, I think The Bell is probably the book where Murdoch is the least obvious about using characters as like stand-ins, but according to experts, her in her art, other novels, she can be quite obvious and have a little bit heavy-handed at times. Hmm. But I try to read some of her bo- other books, but yeah. they're not as, you know, and I don't know, they're just not so uh, they, they, they don't feel so close to me as this yeah. one. Yeah, I understand. So I actually have a, a material question for you. Um, how big do you think the bell is? Oh, you mean like the Gabriel the bell? Like the actual bell, like the bell that they have. In yeah. The like how big do you imagine it? <laughs> I imagine it to be quite big, actually. It's pretty yeah. It must be quite heavy to pull from the bottom of the lake. Yeah. I. Why do you ask? Because I, I had a very hard time picturing it. I didn't know uh-huh. something like, is it waist height? Is it taller than they are? Oh. Is it taller than Dora and Toby when they try to pull it from the lake? Like, how big of a bell are we talking about? I see. I imagine it to be one of those bells that I used to see in Chinese temples. Yeah. <laughs> so... They are browns. They are quite heavy. They're probably my waist high. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but but they're they're big enough to have a small child to hiding. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's the size that I'm imagining. Because it's it's very interesting to me how uh-huh. difficult it was. I mean, there may be some uh, phrase in here that tells exactly on yeah. this, but I. I just like given the bell itself is like it's the title and it's <laughs> the physical presence of the bell like when mm-hmm. it's physically there is so important you know they're like wrestling with it physically to mm-hmm. get it out of the water mm-hmm. and then they're like oh and by the way when it rings it symbolizes death and you know foretells <laughs> death and all this stuff and it's like oh my gosh it's like the bell has so much symbolic have mm-hmm. to the people not necessarily to the novel and then it also is like has this physical heft. It was kind of interesting that, that the actual size of the bell felt like difficult to get a hold of. And it also didn't, to me anyway, it didn't have a clear symbolism for the book. Like it had a clear mm-hmm. symbolism for the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I liked the part where Dora was, Dora had this plan that she'd like, get the bell out of the lake with Toby and then like switch it for the switch, the old one for the new one and all this stuff. And then she's completely unhelpful. And she just thinks of herself as like a witch. Yeah. Which I loved. It also seems very Dora. Like it was just something I liked about her, but then I don't know what the bells like the bell was just presented as such an obvious symbol. Yeah. And then I was thinking like, well, what would it symbolize for the book? Yeah. And I don't know. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree that Mur Murdoch doesn't seem to be particularly interested to have many meanings for the veil. Yeah. Yeah, it means a lot to the community for sure, but it is a bell and which is why I'm a little bit confused towards the end when the new bell is sort of like sabotaged. Yeah. By Nick, and then it fell, fell into the lake again. And I was I was like, is was that the new bell or the old bell? Like and eventually the old bell, the, the bell that they excavated from the lake, I think it was sent to a museum for study. Yeah. And the new bell was being but was installed but with little fanfare. So in the end, it was sort of it didn't it was sort of anticlimactic. Yeah. The installation of the veil. So I think that sort of like also diminishes the the, the symbolic value, symbolic meaning of the veil. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, again, it, it does, you know, it, it feels like, like, I like, I like it when something feels like it's presented as an obvious symbol, but for something obscure. And then uh -huh. it never really <laughs> resolves. Like it's a move that I like. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that there's a lot of things that seem to be presented as like, you know, either Michael is culpable or he's not either Dora returns to Paul and this like vision of wifehood or she does not. And then mm -hmm. in some ways by the end, it just feels like, the question ceases to be asked rather than um, it's resolved. Yeah. Like, oh, do you know what I mean? Does that? Yeah. Yeah. What do you mean by like, what kind of questions do you still have towards the end of the novel for Dora or other, other characters? The very first sentence that we read, it, mm -hmm. it seems like it's setting out these two alternatives for Dora. Mm -hmm. that both of them are driven by fear. Mm -hmm. um, it's either to go back to Paul or to to leave Paul. And then she does leave Paul, but I don't know. Does it seem to you like she's never going to go back to him? I think it's really clever of Murdoch to leave that open. And because towards the end, as a conventional like a reader, it's it seems obvious to have the to have Dora leave her husband. I think that's the more predictable solution. But yeah. to have her um, still um, reserving the right to go back to Paul mm -hmm. and to be able to fight him as an equal, I think that's probably more even more exciting for Dora. Yeah, that's yeah. It's like it's like she will either leave or she will stay, both out of fear. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, it's like she'll either leave or she'll stay, but not out of fear. Yeah, yeah. If she so can do it like, out of her own volition, I think that would be an achievement yeah. for Dora. <sighs> yeah, and she has so much volition. As you said, it's just like this sort of like almost like unguided random volition that she has. Um, 
But so that's, I guess what I mean, where it's like the terms of the question are dissolved, even though the question itself is not answered. Yeah. Yeah. But what about Michael? Do you? Well, what, what, what do you think the question is for Michael at the beginning? At the beginning? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like if, if we were to say the same, you know, the, the same terms of like Michael's arc. Interesting. Yeah. I, to be honest, I think Michael's arc compared to Adora's is less obvious. Yeah. And, and it's a little bit more hidden. And I was rereading this book for um, to prepare for this podcast. And I noticed that Michael, at the beginning, he, he does seem to have a question for himself. Is that how to, that is how to act um, on a daily basis. Um, let me find that. Uh, okay. So basically at the beginning, Michael appears as this person who struggles daily to be impersonal and just the continual mistakes and examinations of conscience. So at the very beginning, he's sort of this person who's very conscious of morality, who wants to behave justly. Yeah. And who wants to be devoid of, you know, who wants to be devoid of human emotions. And I think in the end, he does achieve certain degree of growth in that he allows Dora to be beside him, to be near him. And he sort of tolerates her crush on him, you know, yeah. like he, like it, the, the novel um, states in a very obvious way that Michael is sort of repelled by female bodies. Yeah, and yeah. But in the end, he sort of acknowledges Dora's this budding love for him and he allows her to be near him, to be to be consoled by his presence. And I think that's remarkable progress for Michael because the reason that Nick died is because Michael refuses to um give a little bit of love to him, like to show yeah. a little bit of love. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess that, that for me is Michael's arc. I think that that's a really good point that, um, that even though we could say that Michael is the aggressor, he's also a person who, who was very much wounded. Like he lost his job. He lost his place in society. He, you know, mm-hmm. um, and also he just never knows if he was lied to with Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't know if Nick wronged him, if Nick was persuaded to confess, or if he wronged Nick. Mm-hmm. And it does make sense that he wouldn't be able to just be with somebody peacefully, and that that Nick's presence would be, you know, like at first he's afraid to see Nick, and then he sees Nick, and and then he kind of, I think your assessment is absolutely right. Um, the the one thing he just won't do is just be with Nick, mm-hmm. like love him and like be people together. Yeah. And that he is that he is able to do that with Dora at the end, which is not like romantic, but he, but it is sort of like a, I'm trying to think of if it counts as like a dissolution of the question, mm-hmm. the way that I think that Dora's arc is sort of like dissolving the terms of the question rather than answering it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Michael certainly doesn't end the book with, you know, 
a peaceful, happy, romantic. No. It doesn't start with like, well, he was wounded in this like romantic context and then he's healed. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem that exactly. Mm. He doesn't seem like he's still in that same stuck place. Mm. Yeah, I think he has learned something from this experience, but one cannot tell know for sure whether he's going to live a better life. Yeah, or even what a better life would look like, which is, I think, sort of the problem for both Dora and for him. Mm -hmm. There's no, there's no sense of what a good life would look like for either of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel despairing. The book doesn't feel despairing. No, I guess it's more despairing from like it's less bright. Then, like for Michael, I think it's a sadder ending than for Dora because I feel like Dora is still young and her life is just beginning, while Michael is sort of like towards the. Um, I, I wouldn't say it's the end of his chapter, but it's definitely he has passed his prime, and he has lost the love of his the love of his life, and yeah. he has even lost this peaceful place that he has built for himself yeah and he has lost a lot of things but he sort of towards the end recovered his dignity to some extent and i guess that's and also his his peace his inner peace for that i'm happy for him but for his future i don't know i'm a little bit pessimistic yeah but it doesn't it doesn't feel like the kind of um it doesn't feel like the kind of despairing plotline that Nick's no. or Catherine's plotlines were. That's which true. felt like, I mean, as you had just said, like there's some distance that the book has away from mm-hmm. true despair, even if it's um, describing people, mm-hmm. the structure of the world will never serve. Like there will never be a structure of life that would suit Dora or Michael, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have a favorite scene from the book? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, do you? While I think about it, mm. you should answer. What's yours? I have so many. I love oh, this good book. Answer, good answer. I love this book. But my favorite one, if I have to choose, is the one when Dora is back in London at her ex-lover's apartment. And then the phone rings and she picks up and there's a moment of silence. And then Paul says Dora and that gives me goosebumps and then Dora continues to listen to that silence Mm -hmm. and then she hears a blackbird singing in the backdrop I think that moment for me is just sublime it's just yeah yeah, I cannot get over that moment I think I don't remember that as clearly as you do but I love it I love your description of it um I love the beginning. I love the part where Dora loses her shoes and she's on a walk. <laughs> um I love the description of Michael and uh Nick falling in love. I don't know. I think that I would need to read it more times to like I I somewhat you know like picked up speed as yeah. I went because I was reading for the podcast and also yeah. just um and it's also easy to like turn pages for this book because it's, you know, moves so fast. 
It is. And there's something about the way that she writes where there's a lot that's in summary. And then, mm. and then there's little very brief parts that are in scene. Um, but the way that she writes in summary is so pleasant. Like, mm-hmm. I think this is something that's kind of famous about this book is the way that Toby has just learned the word rebarbative. <laughs> I love that. In his, like, in his <laughs> sections, he keeps using the word. Um, and like, like it happens like a couple times toward the beginning and then it happens yeah. once more toward the end. And she plants it so subtly. She plants it so subtly and then she does it. So it says that he learns the word. And then within the next two pages, he uses mm-hmm. it like three times. Yeah. So it's like she sets it up as like a joke. Um, but then the last time in Toby's section that he thinks the word rebarbative, it's like, it's really sad. It's oh. like, a, it's like a part where he's, it's, he's thinking about what he's learned, I guess, from the experience at Ember with Michael and with, you know, mm-hmm. anyway, I I just, there's something that feels like, um, like as a writer, I think I, I would like, are you allowed to just write a book that's in summary this much? Like, you, there's, oh, really? you know, like sometimes it feels daring to, because it seems like if you're writing fiction, you have to write in scene um, in order to make people feel like they went somewhere. Mm-hmm. You might just have a whole novel in summary. And yet, yeah. it does feel like you went somewhere. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I know you're talking about like people. Are always saying like show don't tell but she tells yeah. a lot and yeah. she t- tells it brilliantly and i think i do miss the kind of novels that do a lot of telling yeah and yeah it's just wonderful it is and there's something sort of old-fashioned about it even mm-hmm. though the story she's telling is so modern um mm. like the freedom of the characters and their just their their physical freedom, the amount that they can just take a train, they could just do whatever, whenever. It's not like a 19th century novel where everyone has to, you know, stay mm-hmm. in the house for three months once they arrive there and, you know, are constantly worried about getting consumption from the moors and whatever. But um, there's something about the actual, the writing itself that felt old-fashioned in a yeah. pleasurable way. Yeah. And I think she did it Deliberately. Did you read the preface? The introduction? Introduction uh, No, I didn't. I skipped it because I wanted to read it at the end and then I didn't have time. It was amazing. And I think um, it was written by A.S. Byatt. Oh, yeah. Who, yeah, I have that copy too. I have my... Yeah. And she quoted something from a famous essay written by Murdoch. It's called Against Dryness. Oh, yeah. And... It was amazing. Like in the essay, Murdoch said famously that the 20th century novel was either crystalline or journalistic. The crystalline novel was a small, perfect object like a poem, quasi-allegorical, while the journalistic novel was a large, shapeless, quasi-documentary object telling some straightforward story enlivened with empirical facts. And it was written, you know, half a century ago, but it was a perfect depiction of contemporary novels. Yeah. Yeah. And for Murdoch, she says, we must pit 
the destructive power of the now, so unfashionable, naturalistic idea of character. I think she's all for naturalistic, old-fashioned representation of characters, which is yeah. why yeah. it feels so, you know, yeah, 19th century, like the, the style. Yeah. I also, um, I also love that. Like, I love a book where you can, you know, and maybe this is why the lack of physicality around the bell. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that the lack of physicality around the bell, um, it stood out to me, even though maybe there's more physicality and I just missed it. But like, it stood out to me because otherwise I just could picture every single person so clearly. Mm. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say that there aren't any writers that do that, but I would say that it's more characteristic of the 19th century than, well, even than the 18th century. Like it, it seems like it's like a, there's like a big moment for describing people's faces and clothes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You no, know, the social meaning of their bodies, mm -hmm. uh, which I just felt like, I don't know. I think that if any of these characters walked into the room, I would instantly recognize them. Yeah. Yeah, I always picture Michael as, I think it's probably because of the name. I always picture him as Steve um, Carroll. Is that how you pronounce his last name? Uh, Carroll in the oh, big show. Yes, yes, but like from Steve the Carroll in yeah, the big show. Yeah. yeah, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, for no reason. All, like my mental image of Michael looks exactly like him. Like a man with good heart, but lot, lots of flaws. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I could I definitely imagine him like I guess I imagine his posture really clearly, like with his hands in his pockets. Like <laughs> that he sort of he seems like somebody who's not who's not proud of himself. Like somebody mm -hmm. who doesn't seem like he's you know, that the main thing that he can offer is like withdrawal because mm -hmm. he he doesn't have something like positive to give the world necessarily. Um, but again, like that seems like such a, like the landscape suggests that withdrawal is the most virtuous thing you can do. And yet mm -hmm. clearly Murdoch herself and the book does not believe that. Like, even if yeah. the landscape believes that the best thing you can do is wall yourself up in a convent and never, ever, ever come out. It's like, does that help anyone? Does that make anyone's life better? Does it make your life better like to withdraw from the world and to not do anything good or evil is not a virtue in this book definitely mm -hmm. no um but there's it, yeah there's a sentence in the novel like at the beginning of the novel um about like basic basically the writers the author's commentary on the uh the community she said those who hope by retiring from the world to earn a holiday from human frailty in themselves <laughs> and others are usually disappointed. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. That's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> yeah. A holiday from human frailty. And I was, when I, when I read that, I want to throw the book away. It's just so, so insightful. It is. It is. Yeah. And that's like the, you could dislike your own capacity to harm people so much that you'd think that your capacity to help people or to mm -hmm. bring love and 
joy into people's lives is actually less mm. and that you would that you're actually helping the world by withdrawing um it seems very sad mm. and maybe that's actually maybe that's like michael and dora's sort of quiet peace at the end when mm-hmm. they just have that quiet like time of kind of like emotional intimacy is just i don't know people's people whose ability to harm mm-hmm. is actually finally less than their ability to bring joy to each uh, to the world just to mm-hmm. just make things better for other people yeah yeah i agree it's very uh it's a very i i want to say i i don't think Mur- i think murdoch by nature is optimistic yeah like, i can feel that like she has this belief in the goodness she also seems happy. You know, it's, have, not, it's not like a yeah. book by a depressed person. <laughs> no. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. You know, she's, she's a like, swimmer. A what? She was a swimmer. Like a well, interesting. Very capable swimmer who used to swim in, in rivers, in lakes. She even built like a pool yeah. in her own house. Um, that makes sense that... The at some point it says that the lake is like that the whole world is reflected in the lake. That mm. there's a second version of the world in the lake, which is weirdly how the lake operates in the yeah. book, but it's not self-evidently how lakes operate in reality. Like you mm. don't see a lake and think like that's a second copy of the world. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. if you swim a lot, you can see how a person might think that. Mm-hmm. Because, especially, I mean, putting the bell inside the lake is an interesting move. Um, but uh, just thinking of the the way that you move when you're swimming, and the way that you're conscious of the depth of the water and any plants growing in it and stuff like that, that's very different than just seeing a lake. You know, if you're walking past and you just see mm-hmm. like a flat surface that is sort of like you can't go in there. You know that. Mm-hmm. That's, it's like it's just a barrier if you don't swim in it. But if you swim in it, then it's like three-dimensional and it has this different form of motion and it has different sets of temperatures and, you know, fauna yeah. and all that. Yeah. Uh, that's really interesting that she swam so much. All right. That's the end of our episode on Murdoch. Thank you to Na and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as everyone at Literary Hub for hosting us. As always, we love to hear from listeners, so please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or tweet to us at LitCenturyPod on Twitter or email us at LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and goodbye till next month.